0: We are continuing this evening with our series, A Firm Foundation, looking at the core doctrines of the Christian faith. And the last two weeks, we've been looking at the doctrine of Christ. So we've looked at his humanity. And then last week, we looked at his divinity. And this week, we want to look at the offices of Christ, meaning um, the roles that he, he has. It's so often that we look and think of Jesus simply as a savior. But the reality is in his life, in ministry, and even now, he is far more than simply a savior. And so this evening, we will begin to just briefly touch upon that. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, this evening, we look into your word. To better understand what it is that your son, you, Lord Jesus, have done on our behalf and continue to do on our behalf. It is so important for us not to have such a small view of who you are and all that you do, Lord Jesus. So we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would enlarge in the capacity of our hearts and minds to understand. The precious reality. That you, Jesus, are more than a savior. Holy Spirit, enable us this evening to worship Christ for all that he is. To see the glory and beauty in his offices. And to understand it has implications for how we live here and now in this world. I ask that the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight, that you would lead us into all truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Many people would not even know how to begin answering the question what are the offices that the Lord Jesus Christ holds? Many Christians would know well, yes, he's God, he's uh, the Messiah, he's a, a savior. He was really man. But beyond that, most people don't really have an understanding of all that Christ did in his incarnation and does now in his exaltation. But traditionally, the offices of Christ are narrowed down to three Christ is seen as a prophet as a priest and as a king. And it's important for us to understand each of those roles so that we can fully understand what it is that Jesus did in his incarnation and is doing now for us. and it has implications even for how we live. And so this evening, we are going to briefly touch upon those. We can dedicate an entire sermon to each office. It could be a series in itself. The scriptures that we could cover just simply reading them would take the entire service. And so this really will be uh, a high level 30,000 foot view. But the first office I want us to look at is the prophetic office of Christ. That Christ is a prophet, is the prophet to put it more pointedly. Now, today we don't really think much about that term prophet, um, we know that there was Old Testament prophets. We know that there are people who falsely claim themselves to be prophets um, in the prosperity gospel and things like that, saying they have a fresh word from the Lord. But what exactly is a prophet? What exactly did a prophet do biblically? And we have to understand that up until the incarnation, up until Christ came to earth, John the Baptist was the final prophet. And prophets, their primary responsibility was to speak God's word to God's people. Prophets up until the coming of Christ would receive direct revelation from God and they would communicate it. Their job, you can say, was to point people to Yahweh and to relay his message. Prophets were messengers in many ways. The first major prophet in all of scripture is actually Moses. Moses is the first prophet we have. But Moses himself, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as the first prophet, was still pointing to one who would come. Moses was pointing to the fact that there was a prophet to come that would be greater than him. And so listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Starting at verse 15. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of Yahweh your God in Horeb on the day of assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh, my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. And Yahweh said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their brothers like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And it will be that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This is ultimately finds its fulfillment in Christ, which we'll see here in a few minutes. But it's important for us to recognize that from the very outset, God is a communicating God. God is continuously communicating and revealing himself to his people through his prophets. And so as we look at the prophetic office of Christ we should always remember that the greatest revelation of God given to man is Christ himself taken upon flesh. So seeing what Moses said here, let's begin to see how the gospels speak of Jesus being a prophet. And the first thing I want us to take notice of is that the people in Jesus' time, they were around him, recognized him as a prophet. Listen to what it says in Matthew 16, verse 14. In Matthew 16, 14, we read. We start at verse 13 to get the context. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he was asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah. But still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? You see, Jesus was going around in his ministry. He was healing. He was preaching. He was teaching. He was doing these wonderful works of God. And people were looking at him and they were associating what he was doing with the prophets. Everybody mentioned here is a prophet. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. And so people may not have recognized that he was the God man, but they were recognizing that the way he spoke, the way he taught made him out as a prophet, as one speaking the very words of God. We see this in Luke chapter seven, verse 16. In chapter seven, starting at verse one, we, this is speaking of the centurion's faith Jesus brings a dead man to life. And in verse 16, it says, And fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report concerning him went all over Judea and all of the surrounding district because he was doing the works that prophets would do. And this word is spreading. So more and more people are looking to Jesus and saying he's at least a prophet. At the very least, that's what he is. We see this in John chapter 4, again, when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus has said to her, starting at verse 16, go call your husband and come back here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you're a prophet. Because he had knowledge that only a prophet would be able to give. He had no relationship with the Samaritan woman prior. And so a Samaritan recognizes him as a prophet. A couple chapters later in John chapter 9, verse 17 This is after Jesus uh, had been interacting with a man born blind and he gives him sight. Verse 17. Therefore, they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. It's amazing that everybody during this time at the bare minimum understood that the spirit of God was upon Jesus. It was, nobody was disputing that fact. Nobody was disputing the, the prophetic works of Christ. Now, whether or not he was Messiah was a different story entirely, but the prophetic office was there. And not only is he a prophet, but he's the prophet. He is the prophet that Moses had spoken of so long ago. In John chapter 6, verse 14, we see this very thing. Jesus has just finished feeding the 5,000. And in verse 14, it says, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had done, they were saying, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Everybody knew at that moment, wait a minute. The one that Moses spoke of, he's here and he, right now. He's doing the things Moses said. He's not simply another one of our prophets, but he's the final prophet of God. So we see he's recognized by his own people as a prophet. But how exactly does Jesus fulfill the prophetic office? How exactly does he do prophetic things? Most importantly... The way Jesus shows himself to be a prophet is that Jesus reveals God to his people. This is why it's impossible for anybody to truly know God in a truly saving way apart from Christ. Because Christ is the ultimate prophet who gives the clearest, most ultimate revelation of God. In John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He's made him evident. He's revealed him to the people. This is the most ultimate work of any prophet to show God to the people. And in Christ, we see God most clearly because he himself is the God man. But he doesn't just reveal him. He speaks the words of God. In John chapter 7, verse 16. So Jesus answered and sa- to them and said, "My teaching is not mine, but from him who sent me." He says the similar thing in John 8:28. So Jesus said, "When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing for myself, but I speak the things as the Father taught me." This is extremely important because Jesus is saying, I'm not making these things up. The very God that you claim to worship, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, that is the God on whose behalf I speak. If Jesus is lying, it's a blasphemous claim. It's a claim to be put to death, but because he is a prophet, he reveals God. And he speaks on God's behalf. But Jesus goes a step further and he also, as a prophet, speaks of the things to come in the future. In Matthew 24, it's considered the Olivet Discourse and he speaks on the events to come of the tribulation of the Antichrist. just the first four verses of Matthew 24 and coming out from the temple, Jesus was going along and his disciples came up to, to the point of the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Now, as he was sitting on the mountain of olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, see that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and will deceive many. And he goes on. The destruction of the temple actually took place in AD 70. The very thing Jesus said would take place here. He foretold what was to come. And he continues to unpack this through verse 25. And in Matthew 25, if you were to look at verses 26 through 31, he talks about his second coming. He's speaking things that no mere man could speak. He reveals God. He speaks for God. He talks about the things God will do in the time to come. Jesus truly shows himself a prophet. But interestingly, Jesus never actually refers to himself as a prophet. People ascribe that to him, but of all the titles Jesus gives himself, prophet's never one of them. And the reason we, this is, is because while Jesus does fulfill the prophetic office, all of the prophecies that the prophets of old spoke of, were talking about him. They were all fulfilled in him. This is why after Jesus is crucified, buried, and he raises from the dead three days later, two men on the road to Emmaus, Jesus appears to them. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, we read, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Jesus doesn't ascribe the term prophet to himself because he wants to make clear, I am the one that they all spoke of. I am the one they were prophesying about. The entire scripture that you have been taught from youth is about me. Jesus isn't simply a messenger. He's the very source of the message. He's considered the word of God, and we see in John chapter 1, so when the prophets were speaking the words of God, they were, he was the one giving them those very words. He is the source of the message the prophets spoke of. And a very important distinction we have to see that separates Jesus from the rest of the prophets is the prophets would often say, thus says the Lord. So Jesus doesn't say, thus says the Lord. In Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 22 through the end of the chapter, several times, instead of saying, thus says the Lord, Jesus says, but I say to you. And so Jesus has an authority higher than the prophets. Because Jesus himself is the God-man. He is the Messiah. And so that's Jesus' prophetic office. And he still ministers to us as the word of God. He is still speaking the words of God to us here and now presently. As we pick up the word of God and we read it and the spirit of God gives us understanding, Jesus is the very word of God being communicated to us. Now, the second office of Christ is his priestly office. So when I say priest, if I say Jesus is a priest, what would come to mind for many people, especially if they're not very churched, would be a big, beautiful Catholic church, some man kind of in one of those robe garbs, perhaps he would have a collar. They would picture a Roman Catholic priest or an Anglican priest of some sort. But when we say that Jesus is a priest, that is not at all what we're talking about. In the Old Testament and even through the New Unto Jesus' coming, priests had two main functions. They were appointed by God first and foremost. So you couldn't just say, hey, you know, I'm going to throw my application in uh, and I want to be a priest. That wasn't how it was. God had to appoint you to be a priest. And if you were a priest, then your entire life was about interceding on behalf of the people to God through prayer and through praise and also by offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. That's what they did. So, how does Jesus fulfill this interceding and sacrificial role as a priest? First and foremost, because Jesus is our priest, he offered the perfect sacrifice for sin on our behalf. The perfect sacrifice. Under the sacrificial system, priests would slaughter animal upon animal upon animal. But they had to keep doing it because the blood of animals was not sufficient to remove the stain of sin forever. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, it tells us, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so Jesus didn't sacrifice animals. He wasn't killing bulls and goats. Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice. The book of Hebrews is an amazing book, um, requires diligent study. It can be kind of tricky at times. But the entire book of Hebrews lays out the, this work of Christ as our priest, the priestly office. So I want to read various passages to show how he made this true atonement this true propitiation for sin as our priest hebrews 2:17 therefore he speaking of jesus had to be made like his brother in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to god to make propitiation for the sins of the people To make propitiation, to remove the very wrath of God towards sin, to pay the price. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. Once and for all. Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of his creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. In that same chapter, verses 24 through 28, for Christ did not enter holy places made with hands, mere copies of the true ones, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy places year by year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundations of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he's been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Lastly, Hebrews ten twelve. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Isn't it astounding? Let me phrase it. for some people, everything I just read would be boring. Let's be honest. Some people find a lot of this discussion boring, redundant. Yeah, I get it. He died. That might possibly be for a few reasons. One, you're barely spiritually alive, and so you need to get on a, on a ventilator of sorts. Your spiritual pulse is low. Two, you may not have a spiritual pulse. And so you're not astounded by these claims. But I hope right here and now the Spirit of God would, would overwhelm you with awe because When we're saying all this, what we're saying is Jesus isn't just a priest that offered sacrifices. Jesus is a priest who actually sacrificed himself. He is the sacrifice. Once and for all, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, meaning that if you have Christ as your high priest, you don't need to keep doing things to be forgiven. You have been forgiven by that one act of Christ on the cross. What kind of priest sacrifices himself? Now, some might be willing, but none of them have the merits. Christ is infinitely valuable. Therefore, he could be the sacrifice for all those who trust in him. This is important stuff. This is extremely important. This letter to the Hebrews, as Christians would have read this, as Jews who had been converted to Messiah would have read this, this would have been flipping their world completely upside down. All they would have known was the Jewish sacrificial system. And they're saying, it's, you don't need it anymore. Imagine growing up and just all you knew is going to the temple, hearing the bleeding of goats, having them see sacrifice, seeing the smoke going up. Once a year, the high priest going into the Holy of Holies. From childhood, that's what you know, and now you're told that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah, that he is your high priest, and that everything you've known since childhood is no longer needed, because your sins have been put away once and for all. The fact that Jesus, as our priest, has made that sacrifice is astounding. But as a priest, he doesn't just sacrifice for us, he intercedes for us. And again, that, about an hour ago, I was upstairs reading some of these verses on, on the fact that Jesus intercedes, and I was extremely humbled. We ask each other to pray all the time, sure. But do you realize that the king of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in him all things hold together, What is he doing right now in heaven at the right hand of the Father? I think he would have really important things to do. But the testimony of scripture is that he is praying for you. God himself, Jesus Christ, is praying for us here and now. In a social media age... We follow all types of people. I follow all types of people. So one of the people I follow all the way, all the time is Dwayne Johnson, right? The rock. And my son thinks it's the coolest thing because at eight years old, he thinks I'm friends with him somehow, right? So he'll always say, hey, can you message the rock and see if he writes back? (laughs) And it's cute and sure, buddy. But he he never responds. My, My son gets frustrated. Why isn't he answering back? I think he's busy. If in fact, Dwayne Johnson were to respond, I would probably freak out (laughs) because I'm just a huge fan. But I don't expect him to. Why? Because he's a rock. He's busy. He's got like a million things going on. And yet, I have the captive audience of Christ Jesus who is always interceding on my behalf. And somehow that is less astounding to me. Think about this. You have his audience. Before you were ever born, Jesus was praying for you. In John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer in the garden, listen to what it says in John 17, verse 9. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then in verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for but for those also who believe in me through their word. 2000 years ago, Jesus was praying for you. If that doesn't humble you, that the one of infinite value and worth intercedes in your behalf. I don't know what to tell you other than let's grab coffee and start at the beginning of the gospel, because that should be astounding The Apostle Paul picks up on this very thing in the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes. For us. He prays for me. I cannot. I, sometimes people say something. I'm like, yeah, I'll pray for you. And I totally forget. Jesus never forgets. He's always interceding on behalf of his people. In Hebrews, again, it picks up on these themes. Hebrews 7, 25. Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is also extremely important for those of us who perhaps grew up Catholic, have Catholic friends. Roman Catholicism says we should pray to the saints and ask them to intercede for us. They look to Mary, the mother of Jesus, as the great mediator, the mediatrix, I can't pronounce it. Why on earth do I need to ask Mary to pray for me when I can go to Jesus directly and he's praying for me? Not only is that claim that she intercedes on my behalf unfounded in scripture, but it's pointless. That's like, why would I talk to the assistant manager when I can talk directly to the manager? It would make no sense. I have the audience of Christ himself, the highest authority under heaven. And he says, he intercedes on my behalf that he mediates on my behalf. We don't need to go to anyone else. And so this role of Christ as a priest interceding on behalf of his people, that's an extremely important conversation. If you are having conversations with friends and family members who are Roman Catholic, First Timothy chapter two, verse five, couldn't be more clear for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That's it. He intercedes on my behalf. He lives to intercede on our behalf. He mediates on my behalf. I need no one else. So as a priest, he sacrifices on our behalf, he intercedes on our behalf, but he also brings us to God. And so a little bit of of theology here under the old covenant, the people of God could not enter into the holy place. Only the only certain priests could enter. And then within the inner room of the temple, the holy of holies, only the high priest could go in there and he could only go in there once a year. And they would actually tie a little piece of rope around his ankle lest he die. They could just drag him out if he died in the presence of God. And as we've seen, Christ is called our high priest. And here's the amazing thing because Christ serves as our high priest through what happened on the cross, we have access to God. Now one of the most beautiful pictures that symbolizes, that shows us this very reality, is found in Luke chapter 23. In Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 33, we're we're being told about the crucifixion of Christ, about his death on the cross and all that took place. And listen to what happens here. We'll start at verse 42, this beautiful statement by one of the thieves on the cross who comes to faith and he was saying jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom and he said to him truly i say to you today you shall be with me in paradise and it was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured and the veil of the sanctuary was torn into as that conversation is taking place as all this is happening the veil's torn. In other gospel accounts, we're told that it's torn from the top down. It wasn't that men tore it. It wasn't that men took a knife and, and slit it. No, it was torn in two. And what this symbolizes to us is that as Jesus died on the cross, propitiated the, the wrath of the Father for all those who to come believe in him, access to God was no longer through this high priestly class of men. But was made available to all of us through faith in Christ. And so, in Christ's priestly office, He brings us actually into God's presence. The fact that you can pray whenever you want to God is because He serves as because Christ serves as your high priest. Had Christ not served as serve as your high priest, you could not pray to Him whenever you wanted. Had Christ not been the ultimate high priest, the veil's not torn. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we now have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Notice what it says in verse 20 inaugurated for us through the veil. That is his flesh. It's the same word that was used in Luke when the veil was torn. Jesus is the true veil. He has now been torn and broken on his crucifixion. And now we have access to God through Christ because he's our priest. It's amazing. So he's a prophet, he's a priest, and he's also a king. And even though we, we know Jesus is king, it's hard for us, especially in America, to really understand that, because we don't we have elected officials who we swap out every couple years. So this idea of a king who rules and reigns over his people is, is, is foreign to us. But Jesus is king, from the very beginning, Jesus was recognized a king. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter two, verse two. Right at the very beginning, as the Magi are visiting, going to visit, it says, starting in verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? He was recognized as a king from birth. But Jesus' kingship is a bit confusing to everybody during that time. Because as a king, they expected him to come and and rule and reign and liberate the Jews and do all of these things. But as Jesus is king, he tells everybody, it's not an earthly kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. That wasn't at all what people expected. But in John 6, 15, he makes it clear. That... To rule and reign on earth is not as king right then and there was not his purpose. So, so Jesus, knowing that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king withdrew again to the mountain of himself alone. I didn't come to rule in Jerusalem. I came to do a work as an, as the king of heaven to rule over the cosmos. So he's not focused on an earthly kingdom. He's focused on a heavenly kingdom. He's very direct with Pontius Pilate about this matter. As Jesus is delivered over to Pilate and will shortly be crucified. They have an interesting conversation in that chapter, John 18. Starting in verse 33. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this from yourself or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What did you do? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Jesus is making clear. He is, in fact, a king, but he's a far greater king than earthly kings. But just because he's the heavenly king and has a heavenly kingdom doesn't mean his kingship doesn't have implications here on earth, because Jesus' very proclamation as he begins preaching is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so there's a sense, and we know he's king over the cosmos. We're living in the already not yet. He's ruling and reigning now, but his kingdom is expanding as people come to faith. And his kingdom, when it says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying, wherever I am, my kingdom is there. And so when we talk about Jesus as king right now, Jesus is vicariously ruling and reigning in the hearts of his people all over the world. And we know this because he's sitting at the right hand of God. He's sitting on a throne. In Ephesians chapter one, verses 20 through 22. Says, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead, seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things, the church. Far above every other power, rule, king. Why do these things matter? Have you ever thought about the great commission is dependent upon the kingship of Christ? We go out there to make disciples. But what authority do you and I have to go up to people and tell them to repent, to believe on Christ, to follow him, to lay their lives down, to obey him at all costs, if Jesus isn't king? Which is why in Matthew 28, he starts at verse 18, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, he says then. But because he has all rule and authority is why we can make disciples. Why? Because he is king over the cosmos. His kingly authority is what we live in light of. I have no authority on my own to tell somebody that they're dead in their sins. I have no authority on my own to tell somebody to renounce all that they are, to forego their identity and find their identity. I have no authority to do that on my own. But I go in the authority of Christ and his authority reigns supreme because he is king over heaven and earth. And he'll always be king. When he cracks the sky in return, he'll be king. He's king right now, whether people want to acknowledge it or not. You think about our political climate. Some people don't want to recognize the election of 2020. And so they'll say, well, he's not my president. Whether you think he's your president or not, he has authority over you as president. In the same way, people can say, well, Jesus isn't my king. No, he's the king. Whether you accept that reality or not makes no difference to what Jesus will do and execute in his kingly office. Matthew 26, 64, Jesus said to them, you yourself said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He will return. He will crack the sky, coming down on the clouds like a chariot as king. That's an extremely, to me, important, comforting reality. Because as the world spins out of control so often, I can take a step back, take a deep breath, and remember Jesus is king. He's ruling and reigning now. And a day will come where everybody will recognize it. A beautiful but also terrifying verse, depending on what side of the coin you're on, is in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 9. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is king, and he will be recognized as king for all eternity. So again, this was a high level. I know we threw a lot of scriptures, and we didn't unpack things to the fullness we did, but I want you guys to get an idea of flavor for these three offices of Christ. And they have implications for us day to day. Because as followers of Christ, if we put our faith in Jesus, we actually get to participate in some measure in his role as prophet, priest, and king. We get to participate in the prophetic work of Christ because as we proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're bringing God's word to the world. So there's a prophetic component of there. That's, that is the great commission. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the father of the son of the Holy spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We're proclaiming, we're sharing the word of God to the world. It's a prophetic office that we're called to do because we share in Christ. We are priests in some regard because in first Peter, chapter two, verse nine, we are called a royal priesthood. And as royal priests, guess what we get to do? We get to intercede on behalf of others. We pray for one another. We're set apart for service to God, like as priests are. And so we get to participate in his priestly office and in his kingly office too, because it tells us in Ephesians chapter two, verse six, that we've been raised into the heavenly places with Christ. And in those heavenly places of Christ, it also says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us. There is an aspect in that it says we will judge angels. We will have some measure of sharing in his authority over the evil forces, over sin. And lastly, especially for the men in the room, for those who are husbands, and for those who are fathers, there's a huge responsibility because husbands and fathers serve as small prophets, priests, and kings in their homes. Husbands and fathers are called to teach the word of God in the home, as a priest does, as a prophet does. They're called to intercede on behalf of their family as priests do. And they're called to lead in their homes as kings, but lead them unto the one true king, the ultimate king, Lord Jesus. And so these offices of Christ are important for understanding his, what he's done for us on the cross, what he's doing for us in eternity. It's also important for understanding our service to him by faith. And then it's important for how the home is structured. I know that for some, I, I go back to this all the time because some people say, why does theology matter? I just need the Bible. By reading the Bible, you're doing theology. So the question isn't, do you, need to do, do you do theology? The question is, do you have the right theology? If we don't understand the offices of Christ properly, we really don't understand the fullness of what he's accomplished for us in and through the gospel. Do you realize if you don't understand the priesthood of Christ, you lose sight of the fact that he's interceding for us right now. As we're here gathered, opening God's word, he's praying for us. He's praying for you. As the world spins out of control, you can rest in his kingship. As a prophet, he's proclaimed the word to us in himself. So these roles matter. And uh, again, it's a high level view. We can always go deeper. Um, But that is the offices of Christ. And so next week, we will move forward. We won't be looking anymore at the doctrine of Christ, but we've seen that he is fully man. We've seen that he's fully God, and we've seen what he's accomplished for us as prophet, priest, and king. Uh, So with that, let's close in a word of prayer.